This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. On this week's PreserveCast, we'll take a look back at one of the bloodiest days in American history, the Battle of Antietam, and the horrendous toll it took on the area's civilians. We're talking with Steve Cowie, author of When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact on the Civilians Who Called It Home, about this battle and how it impacted civilians in the entire region. Cowie will share the process of writing the book, researching the lives of these untold stories, and how they dealt with the emotional, physical, and financial havoc of war on their doorstep on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and we're so excited today. It's very timely with the the recent 160th anniversary of Antietam on September 17th for this episode to be reaching you. Um, and we're going to be talking with Steve Cowie, who recently published a new book that's available, When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact on the Civilians Who Called It Home. And uh, like so many aspects of the Civil War, certain uh, ground has been covered over and over again, but these new civilians studies are really exciting and interesting and open a, a new look at the Civil War and its history and telling the full story of the American history. And so that's why we're so excited to talk with Steve today about this new book. So before we get started, um, you have a different path to history and preservation and all that um, than uh, oftentimes our guests do. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what you do professionally, and then we'll talk about how you got into writing this book. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. I'm I'm new to all this as a brand new author, so this is uh, this is very exciting, and it's also a learning curve for me because I'm not used to being interviewed nor trying to explain these last 18 years of 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 my life. Uh, you know, putting that into words. So wish me luck. <laughs> but in short, I I bounced around a lot as a kid, and I spent most of my years growing up on the West Coast. But I always had. Uh, just a really honest, sincere fascination for history, especially the the American Civil War. And that might have stemmed from my father, who was a uh, a social studies teacher in middle school. And he used to talk about a lot of events and stuff at the dinner table. But I also had a fascination for writing at an early age. So that kind of motivated me as I grew older to to choose as my major in college, rather than going into history, I had a love for filmmaking and television production. So that's what I got my degree in. And um, after graduating from college, I dove into the Los Angeles film industry where I worked for 12 years as an onset assistant. And in between all those projects, I wrote a number of feature length spec screenplays. And by spec, I mean, nobody was paying me to do them. I was writing them on my own accord with the hope of selling them. But this really helped me hone and, and craft my skill of of writing, even though it was fictional. These were fictional stories. So I did that for about 12 years and decided to make a radical life change and moved to Tennessee, where I reside now. And that led me into this Antietam project. And so, well, I mean, I'm going to ask the question that I think anybody listening would want to know. 
at least as of that description, which is, uh, did any of the screenplays make it? Do we know any of them? Are you like behind, uh, you know, Avatar or something? Should we know this? I wish. It was my dream really to become a film (laughs) director out there. But I I tried, you know, I came close. I received literary representation for a number of my screenplays. And I had I had um, meetings with studio executives. It came very close. And I also penned uh, a few short films. Uh, scripts for short films, which I also directed and produced. And I I was able to sell actually one of those. It won a bunch of film festival awards, and I was able to sell that to the Sundance channel. So that film's the only one that really got any sort of national attention. But as for the feature-length screenplays, they're just all stories lost to time collecting dust on my shelves. (laughs) So maybe maybe someday they'll, they'll make it, or maybe the Antietam screenplay will come. Hey, there, uh, we'll have, that's we'll, an idea. We'll, we'll have to ask about that. So, so okay. So you moved to Tennessee. We've still got to connect the dots, though, here, Steve, because Tennessee is not Maryland, uh, where Antietam is. For those listening, we're going to be talking, obviously, about this battle that happened in um, Maryland, the, the bloodiest single day, really, still in American history in 1862. Um, so, how does Tennessee connect to Antietam and Sharpsburg, Maryland? I, I would imagine anyone would ask that because it is kind of crazy why a guy who was raised on the West Coast living in Tennessee would r- become obsessed with Maryland. And it's a great question. But in short, I had been really interested in seeing the Antietam battlefield for a number of years. Uh, when I first read the Shelby Foot trilogy, for readers that don't know what that is, it's about 3,000 pages, just a very uh, fascinating account of uh, multiple battles throughout the four-year conflict. And when I finished that trilogy, there was one battle that just resonated with me. It was stuck in my mind, and it was Antietam, the Battle of Antietam, as they called it in the north, and the Battle of Sharpsburg, Maryland, as they called it in the south. And it only fueled my interest in this when the movie Glory came out in 1989 and the Ken Burns series came out in 1990. Both of these uh, projects, uh, you know, they depicted Antietam in them. And again, I was like, what is it about this place that's like fascinating me. I have to see it. So long story short, I moved to Tennessee to start my life over as a as a, going from an on-set film assistant to a uh, television producer, which is where I've been for the past 20 years doing that. But I was closer to these battlefields here and I was closer to Sharpsburg and I still wanted to write. I just didn't want to write another screenplay. I wanted to take on a totally different project. And I thought, you know, this interest that I've had all my life with history and, you know, interest in the Civil War, this could be a great opportunity to marry those two passions of, you know, just studying history and also writing about it. So out of all the battlefields I had at my access here in East Tennessee to visit, I didn't go to the ones that were close to me. I went straight to Sharpsburg. It was the first place I visited and I fell in love with the place. I absolutely fell in love with this, with uh, just with everything about it, the charmed uh, beautiful historic homes and the the views and the vistas of all those wonderful valleys. And I, I just felt that there's something here that I need to write about. And so how do you make the jump from Antietam broadly to the civilian experience? That's another great question. I I just wanted to approach this really without a deadline. I was so tired of, you know, having to rush all these screenplay projects that I'd done before. And I promised myself, there's no deadline for this. If I, if it's going to take 20 years, it takes 20 years. (laughs) That's almost what it took. But 
I decided, you know, I had a day job and I, at this point I got married and had kids. So I had a family and I thought I got to balance everything, but I'm going to work on this diligently. And I spent several years to just studying the battle in the 1862 Maryland campaign, not just the battlefield at Sharpsburg, but areas in that region that were impacted by the campaign, like Harper's Ferry and Frederick and South Mountain. And I hired authors and licensed guides to show me the ropes and teach me. And I followed rangers on the battlefield. So I got a really good sense of what had happened there from a military perspective. But when I read Kathleen Ernst's book, uh, Too Afraid to Cry, uh, it's a wonderful book for anyone listening who has an interest in the civilian side, uh, war on the home front during the Civil War. And I wanted to know more after I read Kathleen's book. That It just had me so fascinated. And I felt Sharpsburg, there were a number of residents living there. This was a huge event, a cataclysmic uh, event in American history. Where were all the stories? So I shifted from that point to taking a deep dive into the civilian side of Antietam. And it took you 20 years, but it's it's one hell of a story. Um, and I mean, maybe for people who are just tuning in, aren't super familiar with the Battle of Antietam, maybe put that in, into the two minute context. What is which is a difficult thing for someone who spent so much time talking about Antietam. But <laughs> what is the two minute version of Antietam? Why does it matter? And then um maybe we'll 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 really kind of dive into the civilian story how you found them the research that was done that kind of thing because i think it's fascinating that it took this long for something this detailed to be written um but give people paint people a picture of of antietam sure sure this is just going to be a real simple uh you know cliff notes version uh but in simplest forms and any military historians listening please don't judge me too much on this because i'm simplifying it galore but uh by by early September 1862, uh, General Robert E. Lee, commanding the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, he took the, the war north uh, for the first time in the Civil War, and he took it into Maryland. And the Union Army of the Potomac, commanded by George McClellan, those forces caught up to Lee's army uh, by around mid-September. And after a series of battles, all these soldiers, about 125,000 of them, ended up in the Antietam Valley, which was basically this small area in this rural farming community of Sharpsburg and also near a little village called Keatiesville. And uh, basically what separated them was a creek called Antietam, Antietam Creek, and that's where the battle gets its name. But the battle itself was fought on September 17th, 1862, and Historians recognize it today as the deadliest day in American history. Still to this day, there hasn't been any, uh, hasn't been as bad a car carnage militarily in just one day. 12 hours or about 23,000 casualties, killed, wounded, captured, or missing. But tactically, the battle was a draw. And these battered, bloodied armies just kind of faced each other for a day, licking their wounds. And after Lee took his Confederates across the Potomac River and left Maryland on September 18th, President Abraham Lincoln used that opportunity to seize the momentum to declare it as a victory. And he used it uh, as something even more important. He released the uh, preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. 
So it's, it, you know, it really is. It's, it's, I love how you tied together the military and the social and the political. Um, but what's often missing from the story is what you really focused on. And you mentioned, and we've had Kathleen Ernst on before in a previous episode. We'll, we'll maybe put a link in the show notes here to that previous episode, um, who kind of explored the broad story of the, of the Maryland campaign and, and the, the women and children and, and civilians and African Americans, everyone who was, um, you know, engaged in, in that. Um, but really, like diving deep into the story of the civilians at Antietam is something that's kind of been missing. Um, did that surprise you when you jumped into this? Was it do, what what what's your sense for why that was missing from the historiography? And then when did you decide it was gonna you were gonna focus on those civilians instead of perhaps something more broad? Yes, uh, fantastic question. After Kathleen's book, after I read it, I started searching. Uh, wherever I could just to see if there were more stories. And I, I kept asking myself, there's, there's, you know, wh where are they? They've got to be here. There were too many people that lived here and experienced this. And by, by the end of the war with all that was going on, you know, uh, you know, we had the uh, establishment of the national cemetery uh, a couple years after the war. And then the battlefield as as time went on, these people surely recognized the importance of Antietam. And I thought there's got to be memoirs or letters or people just wanting to maybe even capitalize writing little essays or whatever and sending them into magazines or something. But I couldn't find anything. And that's when I realized in order to create something different, um, you know, and find new research, I, I realized at that point I had to get off the beaten path. So I started reading older accounts, the oldest accounts I could find that were written by civilians. And I came across a couple that I hadn't seen before, and they were dropping names. And as, as simple as this sounds, like they would mention Mrs. Rohrbach or uh, Emery Smith, and they would drop these names. And I thought it was kind of an epiphany. I thought, I haven't looked in the census yet. I haven't dove into the genealogical data yet. And that led me into a uh, multi-year exploration into genealogical records, uh, which ultimately involved census records from 1850 to about 1920. And I was following and tracking households uh, that encompassed, it was about 360 different households at first. It was enormous. It was a very difficult thing to manage. But I filled in all this data with all the primary sources I could find. So I was going to the uh, to Hagerstown to copy last will and testaments and equity cases uh, at the circuit court relating to land records. And also the Maryland State Archives has a wonderful collection online of, of land deeds, uh, you know, just all kinds of land records, transactions, mortgages to determine where everybody lived. This took a number of years to determine. But after I started bringing all this stuff together, like obituaries and burial records and, you know, period letters that were written in October 1862 by the civilians, I, I started to get a, a pretty good sense of who lived in this area in September 1862 when the battle was fought. And what was almost more important for me, it was where those residences were located based on all the land research. And so... Maybe this is a good place to take a break and then we'll come back and talk about where that research led and and the stories that you uncovered as a part of that. Um, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, 
The campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're excited to be joined by Steve Cowie. We've been talking all about his new book, which is now available. The book is entitled When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact on the Civilians Who Called It Home. We've been talking all about um, sort of how Steve got involved in this um, and the, the long journey from Los Angeles to Tennessee to uh, rural Western Maryland. So you start doing the genealogy work, putting the, the dots on the map. Um, what's the jump and um, what, what kind of resource did you uncover that allowed you to tell this story that hadn't been told before? After I had uh, compiled this information for these 360 some households, I, I started asking myself, what am I going to do with this? It's interesting. I now have somewhat of a, a, a somewhat of a snapshot of who lived in this area. But as I started to consider crafting it into some sort of book, it dawned on me that this was just going to appear to readers as a list of names. <laughs> You're going from household to household, and it would be very similar to what some people may have read who's, who've uh, dived into this subject. A wonderful account written by Thomas J.C. Williams called The History of Washington County, Maryland, where he's basically just given biographies of all these people. Biography really didn't have much punch to it, though. I felt like I needed more because this was about the Battle of Antietam. That's where my passion lies lied was trying to find out how the battle affected these people. So I had come across a couple of these items in my research called war claims. I had come across these at the Antietam National Battlefield Library earlier in my research. And I thought, where are these things archived? And I, I talked to some of the staff there and they pointed me the way. And I took my findings with all my genealogical data and my land records research, I had a good idea of who lived in this area by that point. And I'm so glad I did that research in advance because it allowed me at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., I had to go there in person because none of these war claims are digitized. So I went there and was able to access a number of names that match my my findings in the dockets. And I submitted loads of pull requests, not only for uh, quartermaster claims that were archived in Record Group 92, but con congressional jurisdiction cases in Record Group 123. And I ended up locating more than 250 claims filed by the civilians related to the Battle of Antietam. This to me was a shocker. I was not expecting to find this much information, but it was like striking gold because much of this information, as I was reviewing it at the archives, I had never seen before. It had never been published. Some of it had, granted, for the well-known battlefield families especially. But so, some of these envelopes had been sealed since the 1870s, since the, the cases were closed or rejected and whatnot. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, were you the first person to touch some of these since they had been in, engaged with? Yeah, I, I I put on my kind of like pleading look in my eyes as I went up to the research room desk and said, is there any way that these can be opened? And they called up to the conservation department upstairs and, and these people kindly came down and opened several envelopes for me. 
and to pull these things out. And most of these were the, the lesser known people, you know, the, the tenant farmers, the forgotten names that I was really hoping to find as well, because I didn't want to make this just about the well-known wealthy farmers. I wanted to try to represent as many, uh, types of people in the community as possible. And that's what these these claims did. They were from everyone. They were from uh, the rich and the poor and, you know, the widows and the, uh, you know, the rich male farmers, as well as the uh, with the widowed uh, women that were um, that, that suffered hardships from the battle. So, yes, this was uh, just an amazing discovery. And that's when I realized I think I've got something. The only challenge now is it was three. It was about three thousand pages of handwritten documents. Some of it was typed. The the congressional cases. Some of it was typed. But I had to figure out a way to interpret this to give it criti critical analysis, transcribe it, and then figure out what to do with it from there. So that this took a long time to uh, to complete. So this is what I mean. What we're talking about now is we're really into the into the into the book itself, which people can pick up. We mentioned it, but it's when hell came to Sharpsburg, the Battle of Antietam, and its impact on the civilians who called it home. Um, and I guess you know we're, there's a big focus on sort of telling these untold stories. And you're talking about um, laborers and tenant farmers. Where's the African American voice in this? Is that it was was that uncovered? Were you how did how did that all play out? Yes. Well, with the war claims, I was able to find claims for two uh, what what we refer to as free persons of color. Uh, back then, they called them free blacks in the census. But these were people that owned their own lands and they were farmers and they were able to file their claims as landowners. As far as slaves, those those stories are just tragically lost to time. Uh, as far as what they encountered, uh, there were two interviews that Kathleen published, uh, Emily Ampt in her recently published book, uh, Black Antietam. She talks about some of these interviews as well. It's an old account written by an author named Clifton Johnson, who put out a book in 1912 with some interviews that he conducted in Sharpsburg with with uh, five residents. Two of those were slaves. So we have those accounts from the slaves, which are fascinating, but I did not find any records of slaves in the war claims uh, as far as what their experiences were. But some former slaves actually came and testified in the congressional cases in the 1870s and 1880s on behalf of their former masters. I found that very fascinating. Uh, yeah, that is fascinating. And I, I guess the story that you paint is that it, this is a catastrophic loss for these people. How many of those that you uncovered, like never really recovered from, from what happened at Antietam? That's a difficult uh, question to answer, Nick, because it really is a case-by-case -case basis. Some of these people, it's just you don't know really what happened to them unless you dive deeply into the land records. And that might be something that I tackle later on down the road. We do know from testimony in the war claims that several farmers had to declare bankruptcy and leave Maryland. They lost their farms completely. Others chose to sell just to relocate because there was no way of farming with their financial ruin after the war and the terrible post-war economy. Um, but others, I was just curious about like some of the tenant farmers and I conducted uh, land records research on them. And it was just heartbreaking to see the amount of mortgages that they were compiling up after the battle, one after the other after the other. And you see that they're indebted to the Bank of Hagerstown and multiple parties for monies owed. 
And fortunately, there is some reference to that in some of the testimonies by the widows after these tenant farmers died, alluding to the fact that one of them literally quoted, she said, the Union Army came onto our farm after the battle and ruined us. I know we lost all we had. That was an actual statement under oath by the wife of a tenant farmer. So it's it, one can only use their imagination. It's difficult to put a number on it, Nick, but I, 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 I'm sad to say that there were dozens of families that were ruined by that battle. And I think people listening might be curious, and obviously they can pick up a copy of the book to learn the whole story, but what kind of compensation, if any, did some of these people get? Oh, boy. To, to, to answer that, I'll try to do this quickly. Uh, the, the, the claims process, and that was the, the process by which civilians tried to recoup some of their losses after the battle. <laughs> this was an incredibly long, frustrating process that dragged from the 1870s, when those investigations began, well into the 1900s. So the first act that gave claimants a shot at pursuing compensation had draconian measures in it that really whittled down what you could claim. They, these people were extremely limited with what they could claim. Many things were just barred completely. If anything was taken through theft or depredations or combat or by the Confederate army, you couldn't claim it. You just, anything that you lost, it was gone. With that act, which, which is known as the Act of July 4, 1864, more than half the claims that I reviewed were rejected outright, outright by the quartermaster general. And those that received settlements received about 15 percent. That's one five percent of the total amount that they were seeking. Uh, to give you just a general comparison to the two acts that followed in the 1880s through the 1900s, those were called the Bowman and the Tucker Acts passed in 1883 and 1887. The findings for those were more lenient because that was a remedial act instead of a, a, a penal act like the July 4th Act. And those awarded claimants about 50% of what they were seeking, but yet half of those cases were dismissed for various reasons. So you were very lucky as a claimant if you received anything through that long process. And you had to make it, you know, to live to that process. I mean, presumably maybe your heirs could go after them, but I mean, you had to make it to the 1900s and you're talking about something that happened 40 years before. Absolutely. And that's what you see in those claims. So many of the claimants uh, uh, who own those, own those farms in 1862 or the tenant farmers, they had long passed by the time these things came into, were heard by the court of claims in the 1880s and 1890s and later. And that's when you really bring in a lot of, a lot of new witnesses who were uh, the surviving spouses. Houses, the, the wives of these people, you hear their voices for the first time, you hear from their children who are now the administrators of the estate and so forth. So I'm sure it'd be hard, but it, is, there a, is there a family or a story, bef you know, as we kind of draw to a conclusion here that you would, and I have some rapid fire Antietam questions for you too, that we're going to throw at you, but um, <laughs> of favorites, favorites, now we're not going to do trivia. Um, but is, uh, is, there a, is there a story from the book that you know, as people who are going to be picking this up and reading it, you know, really resonated with you or feel like you really kind of really sort of like encapsulates the Antietam story and the tragedy of what happens to the civilians who lived in and around this battlefield? Was there one that you came across that surprised you or just really resonated with you and really kind of feels like you tell tells that story sort of in, in, a, in a in a nutshell? 
Yeah, there were, there were so many of those, Nick. And I wish I had the quotes right in front of me to be able to give to the listeners right now. But, um, I, you know, I had an affinity. I, I didn't, I, I tried to take a very objective approach with presenting all the evidence. So it wasn't like I favored one person over the other. But I had a special affinity for the people that were, that were the lesser known people or the people who came from lesser means. And there was a, an African-American tenant farmer by the name of Thomas Barnum. And this man had worked so hard all of his life to be able to pay for his own manumission, to be able to farm. And he lost everything, not just in the Antietam campaign, but when he was struggling to recover, he lost everything the year after in the Gettysburg campaign that came right through that area. That's one thing that a lot of people don't realize. Sharpsburg was hit hard. And that whole region of Sharpsburg, especially north of it, was hit especially hard uh, in the Gettysburg campaign. But this man, somehow through perseverance and resilience ended up surviving this experience, kept his family afloat just through hard work. And he ended up being able to purchase his own farm after the battle. And he was in the position to actually uh, loan money to um, several other struggling African-Americans who some of those who, who had just found freedom after the after the war. So this is a name that should not be forgotten in time. His name is Thomas Barnum, but he represents one of many in the book that's that really resonated with me as far as just the powerful resilience of surviving that terrible ordeal. And for the real Antietam nerds out there, where is his farm? Can you give us a sense for where around the battlefield that farm is? Yes, that was one nice thing that I had was the privilege of working with a, with a very respected cartographer named Hal Jesperson for this project. And we were able to depict his farm just north of Sharpsburg. It was a little bit, uh, it's a little bit northwest of Mercersville, uh, which is... I wish I knew how many miles that was from Sharpsburg, but it's north of Sharpsburg. And uh, Barnum ended up purchasing his own farm near that area. I believe it was a little closer to Williamsport. So he stayed in Washington County and uh, and was able to get through and, and, you know, recover from the war. Well, I think people listening can obviously get a sense that you have a passion for this, that you spent so much time putting this together, that this if you're at all interested in uh you know, the Civil War or the way in which um, people who haven't always been depicted in American history can be elevated through great research. Um, you know, no matter your level of interest in, in history and preservation, this is a great book to pick up. Um, and, you know, as we're, we're um, coming through the, the, the remembrance and commemoration of the 160th anniversary, it's a, it's a time to kind of think about different ways of looking at Antietam. And boy, this is a great way of doing that. Before we go, a couple... Uh, rapid fire Antietam questions. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, uh, building on the battlefield? I love them all, Nick. That was one thing that pulled me to that area was the preservation. I mean, that's why it's so great to be on this podcast to emphasize the importance of preservation. But it was a collective charm that pulled me not just to the battlefield, but to the area. And it's just that feeling I get whenever I get to drive from Tennessee and arrive in Sharpsburg. Uh, and even the the outlying areas, Keatesville and, you know, all those all those nearby areas are just wonderful. So uh, I don't want to I don't want to pick one or the other. They're, they're 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 all they're all just charming. I love them all. Do you have a favorite hike on the battlefield? There are a number of views that I love. Uh, I, I really enjoy the uh, the Ninth New York Monument off the Harper's Ferry Road, uh, the eastern wall of the National Cemetery looking towards Antietam Creek. And of course, it was just one of those uh, 
I don't know why I always do it, but when I first arrive at Antietam after these long seven-hour drives that I have, I always like just walking over to the Dunker Church Plateau, uh, just just you know to the to the left, to the north of the visitor center, and just to gaze out over the Miller's cornfield and look down towards the Muma farm and look out at South Mountain. It's just a breathtaking view. So there's there's so many amazing uh, uh, viewpoints on that battlefield. It's hard to pick one, but uh, it's wonderful. Uh, favorite place to eat in Sharpsburg? That's it's a toss up. Bender's Tavern has some good food. Uh, you know, Battleview Market they make some good subs, but I got to give it to Nutter's Ice Cream. Nutter's Ice Cream wins every time, right? <laughs> that, yeah, Nutter's probably should be uh, should probably be permanently preserved in some way. We need to make sure that we <laughs> we don't lose that cultural icon for people uh, not from the area. It's uh, w- good, well priced, fantastic ice cream. Um, so it's a good good place to go. I'm curious if people obviously they're going to pick up your book, but if you could recommend one book for somebody who's just getting into Antietam to read, what would that one be? Well, from the civilian side, I, I have to give it to Kathleen Ernst, Too Afraid to Cry. I think it creates, a, it just provides a wonderful overview of the entire 1862 campaign. She covers about 10 towns that were affected by, uh, by the, uh, you know, the, by that long drawn out hard fought campaign that cul- culminated with Antietam. Um, And for starting out, oh my gosh, there's so many great books for starting out. I started just on a really general level. And one thing that that was a short read for me that that really might be a good entry point for someone that doesn't want to commit to a long monograph might be uh, James McPherson's Crossroads of Freedom, where he just talks about the importance of the uh, the Maryland campaign. That's it's just it has a lot of uh, compelling uh, accounts in it, and but it also has a great narrative flow to it, and it's a short read. Yeah, I would agree. And that, that one's sitting on my shelf. I can see it see it from here right now. Um, <laughs> so this has been fun. I'm curious what's what's next. I mean, you took 20 years to do this one. What are what what can we interview you on in uh, 2042? Yeah, well, in in jest, I say what's next is a long nap because this has been a nonstop process for me. The last three years have been spent trying to craft the 15 years of research into a book, and I didn't realize how much work goes into publishing a book. I'm a first time author, so it's been grueling. And now I'm about to embark on this uh, this book promotion uh, throughout you know, Chicago, Milwaukee, I'm going there next week and Maryland the next week after to give four talks. But when that's done, I'm, I'm overdue for, for a little bit of a rest, <laughs> a long nap, if you will. But I'd love to find a way to um, be able to share some of the information I found on a lot of these properties, a lot of these historic properties to give some of that historical context to those, uh, to a lot of these homes and farms on the battlefield. And that was one of the reasons why I reached out to you just to see if you might be able to offer any advice on where I could go with that. I've also reached out to the Maryland Historic Trust and I plan to uh, have a conversation with Save Historic Antietam Foundation as well. I'd love to be able to contribute some of these findings rather than have them just sit on my manuscript because a lot of it didn't make it into the book. Well, I think that that's a great place for that to go. And we normally ask for people to give us their favorite historic place or site. I presume you would say Antietam. So we'll we'll take Antietam off. But do you have another favorite place beyond Antietam? Well, when I go up there, it's uh, it's it's out of my way. But I love that viewpoint on Maryland Heights at Harper's Ferry, just looking at the uh, looking at the confluence of the rivers and, you know, the lower town there in Harper's Ferry. It's just a beautiful view. I never get tired of that. 
Well, that's a that's a perfect place to end it. Perfect place for people to visit during the Maryland campaign and when they're here visiting Maryland. Um, Steve, it's been so much fun talking with you. So excited um, for people to read this book. Um, it will be in the show notes so people can pick it up there uh, and buy it for themselves or for a loved one or for the holidays, however they might want to use it. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. Nick, thank you so much for having me. I've had a really wonderful time talking with you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.